Every true pastor must indeed recognize that in all his official duties, he never acts for himself alone. In all that he does, the whole body of Christ has an interest. Surely he will be deeply interested in all that concerns the Redeemer's kingdom. As a watchman on the walls of Zion, he is deeply alert in every movement of that general body which has the welfare and oversight of many congregations in charge. It belongs to the very nature of his office to be subject to his brethren in the Lord and to be faithful in the discharge of all the public as well as the private duties of his office. Welcome, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zelwyn Heine. Joining us today for the first time, the Reverend David Bukes. Gentlemen, how are you? Uh, David especially, thanks for coming on. I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for having me today. It's good to be here. Well, why don't you tell uh, the folks at home a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I'm a pastor that serves in a small congregation in a small town in central Minnesota, right? Not nearly as far north as Zalwin, but pretty close, uh, right in central <laughs> Minnesota. And I'm here with my, my wife and my five kids and enjoying life. For, uh, for OPSEC, he, he has not mentioned the town or the name of the church. <laughs> But it's okay. The uh, Senate effectively docks us all with the doxes us all with the LCMS locator. So we've got that going. If you're really curious, you can. Who really you can wants find to know it. can can figure it out. So <laughs> he also has not mentioned, for doxing's sake, his incredible goat herd that he maintains. So well, he doesn't. Right? He's, he's afraid one, yeah. of rustlers. <laughs> <laughs> These are real issues that a person has to deal with and take seriously. So you know, that's not a joking matter. I don't think. <laughs> well, how is the weather in the? upper part of uh, nor- of Minnesota there. It's been mild, really, really mild, um, which is wonderful, except that, you know, given the personalities that we all have in this area, we're just waiting for, you know, the other shoe to drop and for winter <laughs> to extend into May or June this year. So, you know, n- no <laughs> gift received is uh, without a little bit of uh, uncertainty. I know that feeling all too well, David, all too well, but... Well, how are things in Siberia, Zellin? Actually, still kind of the same. We're having a kind of an unusual year so far. I think David would agree with that, that uh, while it's been cold, it's certainly been colder in years past. So I don't know, pretty mild so far. It it makes me suspicious, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody's up to something. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm not sure what or if I like it. Well, very mild here in Illinois, too. I mean, well, that's not too big of a surprise, I suppose. We got our first... You know, just a light skiff, just a light skiff of snow. The chickens survived. They'll be okay. Uh, we do have to clip their wings this week. They're getting a little too too wily. These are the things that a country parson must do. I, I always laugh. Preach the gospel and clip the chickens. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. I always laugh a little bit. You know, people are sweet, but they're like, man, you're out in the middle of nowhere. It's like I can see an exit to the interstate from my front porch. I'm not in the middle of nowhere. I do a podcast with a guy who uh, literally dresses in bearskins and is paid in um, California gold pieces. And, you know, these people just don't understand. Just don't understand. Um, and and the, the sad part being that, you know, in my, my previous call, I was even more isolated than I am now. So, it you know, yeah, no, I understand. I mean, isolated, you know, by the, by the plains, that's a different, that's a dances with wolves kind of isolation. I grew up isolated by mountains. Which um, we like to say uh, until Lyndon Johnson came and, the, and then television, or television then Lyndon Johnson. But 
uh, you know, it, it made us into a very strong cultural uh, unit. And, and of course, uh, now I'm told that that's a, a racist or something like that. I, I don't really know. But, uh, you know, pray for Appalachia is what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> used to make us a strong people, and we're told we couldn't be proud of that. So so now it's all, uh, now all I wake up to every day is articles about some Netflix movie and uh, why it's not really true. And here's a picture of some chick from uh, Eastern Kentucky with purple hair or something. So I'm supposed to write off <laughs> This is isolate. My, my point is, folks at home, is that isolation doesn't have to be bad. <laughs> is that it's meant to be an okay thing? If everybody just becomes some kind of amorphous blob of a culture, that's no fun. That's no fun. It sounds like I'm I'm saying we should have ethnic enclaves and that Zelwyn's people should be kept in the Dakotas, and that is true. But uh, that's not the <laughs> entire point. I thought, I thought that's what we were doing. I, I thought that was already a thing. So right, we just you know. Passports between, you know, if you if you speak Norwegian, you know, we have to see papers to get into your territory. That seems fair, but you have to stay in yours. So you got to show papers to get out. <laughs> I think it'll work. I think All right, it'll work. I like it. We're going for it. We're going to lobby. We're going to lobby the government for that. We'll see what Ben Sass has to say, because I'm supposed to care for some reason. Well, all right, guys. Uh, now that we've divided the country, we're going to talk a little bit about unity among the clergy. Uh, and today we're going to focus about uh, on um, local councils and, by extension, why circuit meetings can be a good thing. How do we make them better? So we're going to go all the way back, You know, again, looking at local councils, and we're going to start with the scriptures. And, and David, uh, kind of a trial by fire here, of course, is going to be our guide through that, and I have no doubt that he will do an excellent job bringing us through this subject. So, Mr. Bukes, where do we begin? Yeah, I mean, I think that the beginning place is, of course, with the notion of unity that yeah, is, you know, throughout the New Testament as one of the goals for the church, one of the things to strive after, of course, because the goal of unity acknowledges the fact that we are one in Christ, that we have a common faith, a common baptism, a common spirit. But one of the one of the things that I think we often don't take into consideration is that if we're not always striving for unity, it will degrade over time. Disunity is always a threat. You know, the devil is prowling around and his his favorite target is uh, the unity of the church. And so just like, you know, you can't have a congregation that isn't always thinking about building up the believers in that congregation. You can't have, you can't have a church. You can't have a church body that isn't always thinking about building up in unity. So we, you know, we, we can see this starting all the way back with Paul, of course, you know, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. This should be our goal as Christians and especially as pastors towards one another. Yeah. No, I mean, and I, th I think you make an excellent point there, David, that uh, when we're dealing with the question of unity and the, the threat of disunity, you know, and I think especially in a year like this one where we've seen, you know, disunity injected into every level of our society intentionally or unintentionally, you can decide for yourself. That call to unity is something that is 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 deeply important because, yeah, it's. I mean, we, we've seen how easy it is to tear each, tear people away from one another, right? It is. Uh, it is the much more natural inclination, you know, to to seek to differentiate ourselves from one another as opposed to humbling ourselves and, you know, like uh, like that quotation in the intro said, you know, subjecting ourselves to our brethren. That is. I don't know that that grates on my ears. I don't want to be subject to anyone. But in, if I if I don't do that, what am I aiming at? You know, being distinct from everyone else, not not being willing to 
you know, to, to strive towards unity is, is poison in the church. Sure. Sure. Yeah. And this, this being told to, you know, coming from my people who are always looking to be ever more isolated from one another, (laughs) you know, further, further out on some lonely farm. (laughs) As we mentioned, uh, we need unity and cohesion so that the devil doesn't divide us. And when the devil can get us alone, he can do whatever he wants. It's much easier to to lead us astray. We'll talk a little bit more about this as we get into the modern era, but it's fairly early in church history, I mean, even within the scriptures themselves, that we begin to see heresies, divisions, other things um, coming into into the church. Whose responsibility is it to maintain unity? Yeah, I mean, I think it belongs to all Christians to to strive towards unity. You know, the task of of sort of supervising or overseeing, of course, is one that is you know delegated is is granted to particular men, but it is the task of every Christian to 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 work towards unity. What do you think is is the reason why there's a uh, the divisions are so? attractive to some people? Why why follow after false teaching, bad doctrines, um, immoral things? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, it, it, it stems from pride, for one thing. There, you know, being united, being united in doctrine, being united in practice, um, requires that things that appeal to me, things that, you know, I would otherwise desire, are to be subdued. You know, I have to, and and, and for the sake of my brothers for the sake of someone else. So, you know, you think about how Paul talks in first Corinthians about uh, concern for the weaker brother when it comes to eating food, sacrificed idols, concern for the one with a weaker conscience. That's not just in matters that are quite as clear as eating food, sacrificed to idols, but it even pertains to, you know, just my preferences about this or that thing. I mean, this is, this is the reason why a common service is such a valuable thing uh, because it disciplines us. It disciplines us in our, you know, disciplines our pride, which is always seeking to stand up against other people as opposed to stand with them. So even within the scriptures, uh, we see controversies arise, and it gets to such a point that they have to call a church council, and we see that in the form of the Jerusalem Council within the Book of Acts. But outside of that, you you begin to have local controversies within the church, and so what does a local group of churches do very early in church history when there is a controversy? Yeah, they, so one good example of this comes up at the, the Council of Nicaea, First Council of Nicaea. The, the question, one of the main questions that's concerning local councils is uh, the issue of excommunication. So if one, uh, somebody's been executed, excommunicated from one congregation, one place, how is that to be considered by the clergy and congregations in other places. And so Nicaea has a canon, uh, Canon 5, which is issued in order to prescribe semi-annual local councils. They're supposed to happen, you know, once in the spring and once in the fall. And they're specifically to take up this issue of, you know, of church discipline. How can we be united in our in our doctrine and our practice? How can we be united in our teaching and in our lives if we are sort of skeptical or in doubt about about the, the the practice of discipline. If we're unsure, if we're unclear about the use of the binding key, um, or if we have questions about that, how can we how can we be sure about the use of the loosing key? That's really the one of the main questions at stake there. And so these uh, these councils are prescribed uh, semi annually, and that's something that gets picked up 
uh, going forward in in the history of the church. You know, it's just good regularly to have local provincial synods in order to settle outstanding questions about about things like discipline. How would you distinguish the purpose of the the great councils, the one like we've even been talking about on this, you know, on this podcast and these kind of semi-annual ones? Like, how do we how do we distinguish between them? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I think and I I thought about this a little bit in terms of our own, you know, distinguishing between, say, a synodical convention and what happens at a circuit meeting. And there's a sense in which something that's ecumenical or on a large scale becomes very it becomes very abstract. So in reality, you know, what do I have to do with somebody on the other side of the country? What, you know, well, how does what they do pertain to me? Of course it does as, you know, as the body of Christ, but there is a sense in which what happens in my neighborhood matters a lot more for my congregation, for my people, for myself as a pastor. And so I think that it's a distinction in terms of abstraction, which is something that uh, a problem that arises with scale. So as, as an organization, as a church, as a synod gets bigger and bigger, the actors become more and more abstract. They become more and more impersonal, which makes it hard then to settle the real practical issues of, say, for instance, discipline uh, or, you know, or, or local practices, local customs. Those things, you know, are difficult to settle on a, on a large scale, but they're possible to settle on a, on a local scale. Sure. No, well said. I mean, obviously, these kind of semi-annual local provincial kind of uh, councils is something that we see going forward, but they kind of shift a little bit, don't they? I mean, how do we how do we see these same kinds of ideas being used, you know, further in church history as we get closer to our own day? Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things that happens is because they are sort of bound to local questions, they become pretty ad hoc. So, um, you know, the the way that one a local setting is going to handle these issues is distinct from the way that another local setting is going to handle the, handle a local conference or a local council. And it becomes much more connected, say, in the in the 16th century among the Lutherans, it becomes much more connected to the role of, of a superintendent, of an overseer. And so, you know, the, with an interest in matters like visitation, with an interest in ensuring that the congregations in an area are uniform in doctrine and in life, the, you know, the church sees an interest in sending someone to oversee and call the local pastors together as needed to, to settle issues. So I think, you know, just in, in doing a bit of research on this, it really strikes me that although, you know, ecumenical councils or large scale synods can happen with some regularity just simply to transact the business of the church, local councils, local synods really end up being much more ad hoc throughout the history of the church. Sure. No, that, that makes sense. And uh, when we're dealing with, because you, you brought up like the 16th century and stuff and dealing with the uh, the, the visitor or the uh, uh, the superintendent of the local consistory, was this something that they did with a lot of regularity or was it fairly ad hoc as well? Yeah, I mean, it, it again, it varied from place to place. In some places, it's it's very rigidly prescribed, which I think, you know, can parallel a lot of what happens, you know, in our own church. So circuit, you know, circuit meetings in one place can look, you know, vastly different from another place. But but there are some there are examples of, say, in the city of Hamburg um, in the 16th century that they are having routine, regular meetings to get together and read the Bible in Latin and to carry on disputations about contested theological questions. 
Or in other places, there's a fellow, a theologian named Erasmus Sarcherius, who was the superintendent in, in the vicinity of Nassau in the middle of the 16th century. And he had, in connection with sort of his ideas about visitation, he had some very specific prescriptions for how, how provincial synods, how local synods should be, should be organized down to, you know, giving the agenda for the day or for the, for the, you know, for the series of days that were to be held uh, as that council, giving the specific agenda and how people were to behave and the hospitality they were to show to one another and the kinds of questions they were to ask one another. Uh, very, you know, very precise prescription. Can you, can you, can you talk a little bit about what he would have prescribed specifically? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so he, one of his main, one of his main thrusts had to do with uh, sort of inquiring into the doctrine and life, both of the clergy as well as the the laity. So it began a, a local a local synod would begin with um, worship and then gathering in somebody's home at the expense of the, the the larger organization, and they would take up sort of casuistic kind of questions, give a report on what was going on in the area. And then, you know, an interesting, an interesting facet of it that has stood out to me and made me sort of scratch my head thinking about our own practices. They would gather all the clergy in a room with the superintendent and one by one, each clergy person, each, each pastor would leave the room and the, the rest would, you know, sort of ask the question, is there anything about this guy <laughs> that we need to deal with? Is, is there anything lacking? And, and when they're talking about that, they're not talking about really, really stark issues. So for instance, if anybody were to bring a charge that he had been living in drunkenness or uh, adultery or, or anything like that, he was instantly, instantly defrocked. But they're talking about, you know, sort of lesser issues, you know, like, is he doing his job? Is he being diligent? Is he visiting the sick? Um, so they would, you know, they would excuse the pastors one by one. At least this was the prescription. I, I don't know whether this actually happened, uh, but this is what Sartarius prescribes. Leave the room one by one, and then they would come back in. And if there was anything that needed to be corrected, they would, they would uh, lay it before him with the threat of penalties if he didn't, <laughs> if he didn't uh, follow through. <laughs> didn't and everybody would leave, up. including the superintendent. The superintendent would leave the room and then everybody else would have a discussion as well. That, that is so striking to me because it's hard for me to imagine the, you know, how much goodwill and charity <laughs> would have to be extended in order to, to leave the room and know what was happening and what might be coming for you when you get back into the room. At the same time, you know, I can see some incredible value in that simply because if your brother clergy are not going to do it, if they're not going to correct you, who will? You can't, you really can't correct yourself in that way. You, I mean, being subject to someone is, is a very valuable thing. So would you say then that the purpose of these provincial councils or this kind of local meetings or stuff like that should have an eye towards correction like this? Or is that something that was just an ideal of a forgotten age? Yeah, I, that's a that's a good question. I, I certainly think it should it should be a part of whatever we do together locally. I I have some questions about whether or not it has ever been actually practiced with success. I mean, you anytime you have somebody like Erasmus Sartarius who's big on discipline coming into a, an area prescribing something like this, naturally the reactions are <laughs> are pretty visceral against that. And so it, it, I, I don't know how you ever begin. I don't know how you ever begin doing something like that. So, so while it might be wonderful, it, it, sort of theoretically, I don't know whether it would ever be practicable. Well, we've got to take a quick break. We'll be right back and we're going to head into the 19th century right after this.
The word of the Lord says, Get wisdom, get understanding, forget it not, neither decline from the words of my mouth. You can check out all of the Word Fitly Spoken podcasts on Podbean, iTunes, or your favorite podcast app. We'll be right back. Welcome, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. We are talking about local councils, church conferences, that sort of thing, how they got started, why we do them, and what we should be doing with them. So in the last segment, we went from the Bible all the way up to the 16th century, and now we're going to bring things a little bit closer to home. We're going to see what what the Lutherans were doing in the 19th century and really see the beginnings of the current form that we have in our synod today. David? Yeah, you know, a, a good uh, jumping off place for this is to hear what Leah says in his, in his The Pastor. He talks, interestingly, interesting to me, um, not about very formal conferences, not about pastoral conferences or pastoral synods, but he does talk quite a bit about neighborly relations, the importance of them, and especially the importance that they be something more than just social gatherings, especially because social gatherings have a tendency to lead to, you know, gossip or, you know, other, other unsavory practices, which, you know, I think that it's easy to, to picture the kinds of things that happen all too easily among, among us, you know, that if we are only coming together for the purposes of, you know, being together, of socializing together, it's very easy to lose sight of what our ultimate purpose is as brothers, you know, brothers in the ministry together. So he, he talks about specific specific sort of guidelines for spending time together. There should be issues that are taken up, that there should be time to hear what each person has to say about about a given matter. They should be a lack of frivolity and uh, seriousness about these things. Um, and the whole family, interestingly, he says, should be involved. This is not just about, about pastors getting together, but about cultivating neighborly relations among clergy families. So that you know, it presents just a, a sort of a, a little bit of color to that so that whole ad hoc notion of of gatherings. There's something that's needed for pastors to to live together in in a vicinity. What is it? It's a little bit you know, it's it's there's not been a, a, a prescription that's been lasting throughout history. But this is this is what Leia has to contribute to the to the idea to the question. So would you say that compared to the 16th century, that his idea of gathering is much less, at least maybe in the ideal, kind of the platonic ideal, structured? Or is he still, because he still has a seriousness to it, but we saw in the previous several centuries or whatever, a much more kind of, I guess you'd call it rigid, kind of like a, a detailed idea of what it should be. Would you say that he's kind of moving away from that or what is he doing here? Yeah, and I, I, I think I think that's spot on. I don't know, you know, I, I wish I knew more about the context, whether that comes as a result of, you know, the, the, the circumstances, which, you know, maybe this is, maybe there was nothing happening among neighboring clergy, and this is just sort of prompting them, or maybe too much was happening. Maybe they had neighborly relations that were, you know, all too social and all too friendly. And so rather than prescribing something very 
precise and formulaic, we're going to just try and try to temper things a little bit. I don't really know the answer to that question, but it is clear that he is he is not trying to prescribe something very rigid, uh, but he wants everybody to to pay attention to the goal and purposes of 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 gathering together. The goal of all kind just to to quote him briefly, the goal of all right conferences should not be majority but equality and unity and not just outwardly but also inwardly. And so he's interested in you know, a common spirit cultivated among among the pastors. Well, how does how does that move forward then, say, in the early Missouri Synod? I know that's kind of a weird jumping off point since Leah and some of the early Missourians didn't always get along. But how do we how do we see like Walther in his time dealing with this kind of fraternity among the clergy? Yeah, I think um, so. When it comes to the LCMS, you can see some some threads here that are picked up from earlier periods. So in the you know the the original synodical constitution there are prescriptions for synodical oversight for synodical supervision of pastors which is you know a task that belongs to the president and is you know he's supposed to visit you know make a make a goal of visiting every congregation over the course of 3 years and that that notion of oversight that notion of supervision i think it's interesting to you know to think about how things change with scale so when the Missouri Synod, you know, is constituted by a smaller number of of pastors and congregations. There's a there's a much greater familiarity. When, for instance, the synod gets together in convention and there's a roll call, the names appear in the the, the convention minutes, and chances are that you know most of the people on on the rolls. There's a very different feel, and and those synodical conventions seem to serve the purpose of of you know, pastoral conferences. It's a time, you know, conferences are supposed to accompany conventions and it's a time for the the church to ensure that uh, in an individual, in a personal way, the pastors are are, are walking together, are, are united in doctrine and in life. So that seems, I mean, it's, of course, the, the Missouri Synod is, is trying hard to define itself at that period of time. And I think that especially as it tries to define itself over against, you know, sort of a stark hierarchical view of the church, they're still, they still see a need for something, something formal that ensures that, you know, this mutual understanding and correction is possible. Uh, given Walther's tendencies towards, I don't want to say repristination, but you know, a love for the previous centuries and the way that he's trying to bring some of these things forward, does he tend to imitate the 16th century with this kind of more detailed, precise kind of way of looking at it, or is he a little bit more? Let's, as long as it's happening and for a good purpose, you know, that's what we want. Yeah, in in his pastoral theology, Walther quotes at length, you know, the superintendent of Hamburg. Just describing what is the ideal practice, you know, getting together and reading the Bible and disputing about specific theological subjects. So, so it seems that Walther sees that as a really valuable, valuable way of doing things. But again, I don't think that, I mean, it certainly wasn't in, in the, it wasn't consonant with the the, the practice of the Missouri Synod to be very prescriptive about that at the time. Mm -hmm. But it seems like that, you know, that would be the goal, something to aim at. Of course, you know, I think, for instance, about Minnesota at the time, you know, there are missionaries in Minnesota. And so it's not, you know, it's not like there's a real opportunity to, you know, the missionaries, missionaries are traveling west to east and back across Minnesota three times a year. So there's no, there's no really, you know, sitting down with other pastors and making sure we're all on the same page. It's just sort of 
trying to trying to get the job done as well as you can, you know, given the circumstances, which is why synodical conventions and the pastoral conferences that accompanied them, I, I think were, you know, really valuable, really, really valuable at the time. Sure. Well, and it was those Minnesota missionaries that brought about the North Dakota congregations as well. So we, we obviously owe them a great debt as well. But yeah, no, I, I, and I can certainly understand, you know, the, the inability for a missionary like that, especially in those early days where they were traveling these tremendous distances. I know uh, when Fotenhauer passed through North Dakota at that time coming out of Minnesota, you know, he would, he would kind of set up local things, but then he'd have to kind of move on so that it really would be no time for collegiality just because of the distances involved. But no, it is still something certainly that we want to strive forward to. And I, I could see the the importance of the conventions and the conferences that went along with them, you know, in, in such an environment. Yeah, and I think I, I think it is it is something a, a need that accompanies scale. So, you know, there is no need when there is one pastor and he is, you know, sort of by himself ministering to 45 different congregations in central Minnesota. But as things become established, the question arises, how do we live together in a way that reflects the unity that we do have in, in faith, that those questions emerge from that situation. Sure. Sure. That makes sense. Well, how do, how do some of the other important figures in this time period kind of approach the question? Let's say like one that we've talked about several times on this podcast, George Henry Gerberding, how does he approach the question? He is very earnest about the question and his, his prescriptions are not for the form of a, of a pastoral conference, but the behavior of the pastors at the conference of um, <laughs> uh, being very <laughs> attentive. So he, so, you know, he, it goes so far as to say, look, when you're at the conference, you know, any reading, whispering, talking or laughing are out of place. So you should be paying attention. You should be taking notes. You should be more ready to hear than to speak. I mean, I don't know if these things are, are, uh, uh, making your ears turn red at all, but they, they do mine. I know, um, you know, looking, you know, you go to a pastor's conference and you try to find a seat nearest the outlet on the wall so you can pull out your laptop, make sure you're doing work. I mean, I, I don't know if, I, I don't know if I'm revealing too much about myself right now, but I think it's, uh, you know, he is concerned for not just the, the outward expression of, uh, or the outward striving after unity, but that the pastors involved be, you know, inwardly attentive to what is going on. Being slow to speak and being humble and gracious. And if you're young, you keep your mouth shut for, you know, for a long time, for years and years and years until, you know, it, it just simply acknowledging that there are wiser and more seasoned people in the room. But he he also, you know, is is just very, very ardent in saying that participation is is a must. If we believe what we say about about the unity of the church and the need to strive after unity, then participation is is absolutely requisite. So the first question shouldn't be, what's the Wi-Fi password? Is that what? <laughs> we learn a lot about ourselves and others when that, when, you know, by those first questions that are asked. That's right. <laughs> uh, Willie, do you want to add something to this? No, all very good. You know, setting up uh, kind of where, where we're going, how we got here. So post-Gerberding, the Synod begins to grow uh, rather radically. Or post, I mean, Gerberding wasn't Missouri Synod, but you know what I mean. Um, once right. we get out of his era and more into the 20th century, things begin to grow. So does that change how these meetings are conducted? Yeah, and here the history is a little bit unclear. Uh, just looking back through convention 
minutes from from the synod in the early part of the 20th century, the the problems of scale begin to emerge. So, for instance, in the 1917 convention, the synod decides to create electoral circuits. So, you know, even to this day, the distinction between electoral and visitation circuits remains. But the problem was, you know, we have too many delegates coming, and we could, you know, we could we could group people together, group congregations together, and send fewer delegates to convention. But the, the, the notion of grouping congregations together in circuits comes from this need for, for supervision. So the, you know, the, the, the synod president is charged with supervision, which then gets delegated to district presidents who then you know, eventually have it delegated to circuit visitors. So it's, you know, it's interesting to consider that it, the, the formation of visitation circuits is, uh, is an extension of whatever kind of oversight we have you know, asked of our synodical president. So, you know, it, it, it casts light onto the kinds of things that we should be aiming at in, in our, um, in our local gatherings. You know, what, what is the purpose of a synod? What's it for? What, you know, what's it for? How does it accomplish those things? And how are those things reflected here locally? So as, as synod scales, those, again, you know, these kinds of questions emerge. Again, when you, you know, if you, you go to convention and you know many of the names on the rolls, that's a very different experience from, you know, going to convention. And it's no longer just people from the Midwest, but, you know, you have people who are thousands of miles away who you'll never see again. It, it changes the shape of, you know, what can be accomplished at a synodical convention and, and accompanying conferences and where the work of, you know, striving for unity needs to needs to carry on. Namely, I think I think much more locally at that point. So would you say then that as we scaled up, as the Missouri Synod scaled up in size, that, and you kind of suggested that the original ideal for what the president was supposed to do was kind of slowly delegated further and further down. Do you think that that has kind of shaped the way that we look at the, the Synod as a whole kind of a thing? I mean, has it changed the way that we even deal with each other, even on a local level? Or do you think that it's just kind of a you know, it's just kind of we're just kind of going along and seeing what's happening here. I don't know. I don't know how to put it. Yeah. No. I I I kind of wonder at, at what point in history you see these things fall off. Again, in, very remarkable things happen when organizations scale. So as soon as you begin to delegate things, there's a there's sort of a la- a loss of integrity. Just just by definition, some attrition happens as things are are delegated, and then I think you rapidly find yourself in a in a place where there's a formal adherence to whatever was delegated, but it doesn't actually happen in practice, which is, I think, one of the things that we see, you know, in the, the, the wide variety of circuit practices, you know, so like if if the if a visitation circuit stems from some from a root, you know, that that has to do with the supervision of the, the synodical president, why isn't there uniformity in practice? Well, it's because there's some degradation that happens as things get bigger and and matters get scaled. Hmm. Yeah. No, I, I think that I think that's right on point, especially because now there's no way that we could reasonably expect, say, the synodical president or even in some cases, the district president to visit all of the congregations in the district. I mean, because some districts are just so large that that, you know, may not actually happen. And in many cases, I think that's not happening. So, well, then then the question is, if it's so large that they can't carry out their stated purpose, which was visitation, I mean, at what point are they justified as being just administrators? And if they are, that's fine, but they're still not described as that. Are we in danger of 
becoming simply a bureaucracy. I say that as someone, you know, who lives in Illinois and our civil politics are very well oiled and, and machined. We have no semblance of bureaucracy in the state of Illinois in our in, in Springfield or, or Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, I think it's parallel to the, uh, obviously parallel to the challenges that happen in a, in a congregation or, or say in a school, you know, as things scale, I mean, there's a point at which the pastor can no longer visit everybody in the congregation as, you know, sort of as a, a surrogate for caring for everyone in the congregation is there's a point at which it's too big for a pastor to do that. And so he must do, he must find another way which involves delegation and therefore puts him in a position of administration. It's, I mean, it's, it, it, I don't see any other way for that to happen. What, you know, once a, once a certain size is reached. And I, so, you know, I think that, I think that you're right on Willie, that there's, there's an infeasibility that we just, we just kind of haven't acknowledged, you know, we should, it's helpful to call a thing what it is. I do find it particularly interesting that, if we weren't semi-mandated, and we're not mandated, we're just sort of asked to do things like winkles, conferences, and everything, um, that they just wouldn't get done. That you you have to have some kind of mandating of getting together. And for business, I understand it. Business needs to be conducted at regular intervals or in a timely manner. But in some ways, <laughs> district-wide, circuit-wide, it's like scheduling play dates or something. It's really uh, It's really strange to me how yep. how this happened it's kind of like with certain other programs they have for pastors it's like well we're going to force you or not force you but twist your arms into going to these things so that you boys can make friends and learn to play nice and that at least that's how it appears to me so you know maybe maybe i'm more sympathetic to the 19th century guys saying it shouldn't be totally social although i don't have a problem with the social gatherings that that naturally come up i just have to chuckle a little bit when it's like you guys wouldn't you guys wouldn't play nice unless teacher made you, made you share the Lincoln logs or something. So now, so now they're yeah. gonna they're gonna force you to sit in a room and talk about how you how you feel about things while you while you gorge yourself on a C tier taco bar somewhere, and <laughs> and and uh, you know, and then we're gonna call that we're gonna call it good. It's like it's a, it, this astroturfed version of it is what I don't like. Maybe this is the one way where I where I do come across as German when I just want efficiency. I, I think the ambiguity about you know whether whether we you know what the purpose is and whether we really are are mandated to do these things is interesting because of course pastors conferences like district district wide pastors conferences have historically had excuse committees you know yes. among you know attached to the program committee where if you didn't go you needed to give a legitimate excuse otherwise they were going to come after you in some, in some form. Well, it would still, it would still says that in most districts, it'll say is required, must like submit excuse in writing. Right. And, and, and I mean, I guess again, calling a thing what it is, when, when was the last time that happened in, you know, in a given district? In fact, I, you know, I served on the program committee in a, in a district for a pastor's conference and there was a, the question came up, what is this, what is this excuse committee doing? Has anybody ever served on that committee? What, you know, what's it here for? What constitutes a valid excuse? Right. You know, and so it's, it's just, yeah, it, I think that as these things become, and we're getting into the third segment, we're going to talk about, you know, organizing them and things like that, but as they become so professionalized and, and kind of bloated in a way, because there's a lot of filler at these things, whether we like it or not, when we're talking about the bigger gatherings, it just is what it is. It, it becomes kind of an astroturfed event, if I'm being 
if I'm being frank. Like, folks, let's get in, let's get the business done, and let's leave the the, the harder fraternity work to the guys who actually have to see each other and work together at uh, at the district level. Because I think that is ultimately, as we've been saying for 40 minutes now, localism is the key. It's really the key to everything, but we forget that. Jesus and localism will solve uh, many, many problems. <laughs> For all of our problems in the end, but literally yes. every single Ab- one. Absolutely agree. <laughs> all right, we're, we're going to take our next break. We'll be right back with more word fitly spoken. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The Word, front and center, in doctrine, in history, in life. That's the mission of a word fitly spoken. We've got more on the way. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi and David Bukes talking about church meetings, local conferences, all of those sorts of things, and how we got to where we are, what the purpose is. And so we've got through really the history up until today. Now what we want to do is talk about, should we even have these things? And if so, what what should they look like? Uh, what do we like about them? What could possibly be be improved? So David or Zellin, who wants to jump in first? Why, why, why gather with our neighboring clergy persons and clergymen and 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 others? Yeah, you know, I think going back to uh, what we said at the beginning, I think that unity is the most important goal here. And oh well, point of order too for those for those who are just tuning in, we're not talking about ministerial associations meeting with people of different faiths. We're talking about synodical meeting, you know, people of the same fellowship meeting. So we figured you, you, you all knew that, but yeah, I just want to be clear. Somebody's always looking to take something out of context, but uh, yeah. So, you know, I think that the answer to the question about unity is actually is very easily decided and it fits absolutely with what you guys are all about here, you know, opening the Bible and reading it. I think that there's, you know, if we're not getting together with the our fellow clergy to talk about and discuss and read the Bible together, then what what are we doing? I think that that's got to be a starting place for having any benefit from spending time with our 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 neighboring clergy. But how do we avoid the kind of a that big organization formalism that we were kind of talking about in the in the previous segment? Because I know sometimes, and and probably in some circuits at least, you know that that it can kind of devolve into a we're getting together because we have to kind of thing. Is that conducive to this kind of unity, or you know how do how do we approach that question? Yeah, you know, just sort of just from my own personal experience, I think that the the most beneficial time that I've spent with with my fellow pastors has been studying texts that are uh, you know 
studying texts from the Bible that are uh, pertinent because they're in the lectionary, because these are the things we're preaching about or teaching about at present. And I think that that's how it, you know, it avoids this sort of, one of the ways to avoid this feeling of you know mandatory participation is actually this is relevant because these are the things that we as the church are thinking about altogether at this point in the church year at this you know at this time in our in our life together well it kind of goes back to what we said in the very beginning you know with reading from the scriptures it's you know clergy too can kind of go lone ranger and find themselves in predicaments i do think the mutual consolation of the brethren is is very important and that iron does sharpen iron there may be theological controversies out there that some pastors are not aware of. You know, correction is certainly possible, although depending on your circuit, perhaps not likely. Who knows? Um, all the dynamics are different. They're made up of individuals. But I think it's good, too, when, when a circuit or, you know, like a winkle, uh, we can poke each other a little bit in a good way and kind of prod each other toward, toward something. I'm sorry, what do, you, what, what do you think are the reasons why we can't, this is a r- real live question in my mind, why, what are the reasons we can't or don't poke each other when we should? Well, one, my circuit does. They are very good at this. So we do give each other a bit of a hard time and rebuke and reproof if we need to. So it is, the, it is, it is possible. But I believe that in, in many circuits, this doesn't happen for one reason. It, it's that we're, we're soft. We, we don't even like teasing and joking. Now, there's a point to where it's out of order. Don't get me wrong. But we don't even like mild ribbing. And so so if, if you, I think maybe the key was to have brothers or cousins or something in your life. That might have helped. But it, uh, <laughs> I, I really do think there's this idea that we need to be nice and maybe a professional. And there's this very soft feeling that comes from a certain generation where everything has to just be kind of, kind of like family Christian bookstore, chicken soup for the soul kind of stuff. And nah, nah, fam, it needs to be, let's be a little, let's be a little more hard nosed. Sometimes we can, we can be, we can relax. We can, we can joke around, but we can be serious too. And sometimes the discussion needs to be, no, (laughs) Hank, whoever, whoever proverbial pastor is, it needs to, you know, this isn't good, man. Why are you doing this? Or sometimes it needs to be like, Hey, pastor number two, maybe, Maybe don't sleep in so much. Maybe don't drink so much, right? Maybe maybe jog a bit. Maybe lift. I mean, things like this, right? It's okay to give each other a hard time uh, for the sake of making us better people. And I th- and frankly, there is just too much of a culture of niceness and professionalism that has infected us. So as as this idea of clergies as professionals, you know, as as if we're completely different from normal human beings has infected the the minds of so many pastors. Ironically, their worship and practice has become informal. So you, what you end up with is is in many cases a, a clergy that takes themselves seriously as they should, you know, but 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 is willing to see correction, and uh, their worship is disciplined. But you have another type of person who doesn't want any kind of friction or anything. And yet their doctrine and practice becomes really rather lax. I find that an interesting phenomenon. And and so, yeah, I think it's it's some circuits, for whatever reason, whether it's generationally, culturally, whatever, have found themselves just becoming soft, just becoming too nice. And we want to be nice. We want to be friendly, but not that kind of nice. It, it presents, a, I mean, an interesting uh, a question for me, if, you know, like which, if we can't correct or receive correction from our, from you know, our fellow pastors, how can we ever expect 
our congregations to receive correction from us. You know, like if if the people who ostensibly should be able to take it <laughs> and and those people whom we should assume should be able to take it and we can't do it for them, how could we ever do it for our congregation? And I think I mean I think that's one of the yeah. one of the ways that at the root and of that a lot isn't of problems. to say that a winkle should just be like a uh, like one of those 70s kind of Amway presentations come cult activities where they would lock you in a Ramada ballroom somewhere and just humiliate you for for 48 <laughs> hours. That's not what we're saying here. Like the whole goal of Winkle, of course, is not to get in and be like, "Hey, you suck." That's not what we it's not what we're advocating for here. It's just saying that we should be able when when appropriate to to correct if we need to and to gently do it. And sometimes that can be done uh you know with some with some humor, don't get me wrong, but yeah, this isn't just struggle sessions or something like that. This is absolutely not what we're advocating. But at the same time, it shouldn't just be show up, whine, and and gripe. I've got a B word I usually use for this, but I won't. It's family show. But just to whine and gripe and to bemoan your station. I mean, I guess there's there's time for that. It wouldn't be a winkle without it in many places. And it wouldn't be a, a professional church worker gathering without those sorts of things. But there needs to be something a little bit more constructive in between the, the social the social kind of stuff. So as you say, Bible studies are very good. And I would, I would also submit another uh, evidence that we've gone soft. It might be a cause, but I think it's just a symptom that we've gone soft, is the reading of canned Bible studies at Winkle and at pastor's conferences and at district conventions. It needs to stop, and it needs to stop immediately. There is nothing worse, and Zelwyn, I know you agree with this, so please say amen, uh, with with the reading of a canned Bible study. Because nothing makes you want to leave a place faster than showing that zero effort has gone into uh, what you're listening to. Uh, I, I believe that our, that our scripture study should be lively, and that they should include opening a Bible and, and reading it. Nothing makes you want to leave life quicker, but go on. <laughs> right. Like, it's just, well, I printed this off. It's, it's the epidemic of, of, and you know, you know, somebody has a winkle when you log on to any, to any, to whatever social media of your choice, whether it's Facebook, possibly Twitter, or maybe you're really cool and it's Gab or something, but, and, and you get, hey, does anybody have a, have a study on uh, loneliness? I need it in five minutes. I know what you're doing today, Pastor. You've got a winkle, and you forgot you were up. I understand in a pinch <laughs> the need for the canned study, but so much when you use a can can studies all the time, you stick to this really strict schedule, and then it's it's just basically can study, be nice to each other, lunch, whine a bit, go home. I just don't think that's the best use of the time. I think I think we need to just develop a bit more of a thick skin. I think if we had a thicker skin, we wouldn't take everything as an attack. You know, that, that goes back to your first question. Why do they, are they, are they like this? We perceive any, any pushback as, as an attack on us or dignity or something somehow. That's not what it is either. And even in a winkle, even in a, even in a circuit where we're all in the same synod, you are going to have people that can't see eye to eye, but we should at least be able to both say where we're coming from without somebody crying and tell tell us how you really feel about all of this, Willie. <laughs> well, you teed it up. You teed it up. Um, and I'm not making, and I'm really speaking, I'm really painting with a broad brush here. There are very good circuits that are in no way like what I described, but there are also circuits out there that are every bit what is being described here. And I think we just need to get over, we need to get out of our comfort zone a bit. 
you know, I'm not saying be edge lords all the time, but yeah, sometimes be a little edgy. It's okay. <laughs> well, is is this is this also a problem of distance? Because I know at least out in my part of the world where congregations tend to be, you know, very far apart from one another, especially in, you know, certain parts of the, the region, is just not actually being close to one another causing some of these issues? Or is this just uh, something that can be overcome? You know, I think that's very fair. I, you know, maybe if you're far enough away, you don't know each other well enough, so you're not afraid or so you're not comfortable being that open with each other. But I think given enough time, even that can be overcome. Sure. And furthermore, Winkles, which we still call them Winkles, I understand that, but Winkles ought to be just pastors, just men. I don't think they need to be open to other church workers. I think if family is involved, wives, because I know out where you are, the the families all come sometimes because of the distance. That's fine, but keep them in another room. Lock them out. Pastors need to be with pastors. Men need to be with men so that we can carry on the work we need to do and have the discussions that we need to have that we can't necessarily have with other with other people. So I'm saying I'm not saying women ruin everything, but they they ruin a winkle. <laughs> oh man, this is this is getting hot, but go on. <laughs> yeah, I mean no, I you just it just look, it works well. Let the women have their sphere and let them get together and do their thing. That's good, but let the pastors who are in, who are ought to be male, have their have their space. You know, back to back to your your thought about distance though, and I think that actually, you know, the, even in closer proximity, we struggle. We can it's it's easy to struggle with having the edge that Willie's describing, it, it, for an, for a different reason because we see each other all too often, you know, and it, it's easy to to be concerned as as pastors often are about damaging personal relationships or losing the affection or kind feelings of another person, they, they're being afraid of that at the expense of saying what needs to be said, of speaking the truth. And, and so, you know, I, it, my, you know, my, my setting is of course very different from yours. You know, I have, I have, you know, LCMS churches within, you know, rock throwing distance of, of me. And it's, it's, it, obviously presents a different, a different kind of a situation, but I think the challenges are still there. You know, you know we were talking in sure. between, in between uh, segments here about how, how odd that is. And I wasn't used to it until I got here, just being so close to other other LCMS churches. I mean, I shot a possum the other day and threw it and, you know, it whacked into one. And yeah, they're so they're so close by. It's strange to me. I didn't think about maybe maybe too too close breeding that too. I think that's a I think that's a fair point. But if we just apply the principles of male friendship, uh, this should be easily overcome. Men know how to be friends. And you might get mad at each other, and that's fine, and you get over it. You don't hold grudges. You don't hold grudges, okay, because we're not supposed to because we're Christians, but at least if I can't appeal to Christian morality in in the air of modern Lutheranism, can I at least appeal to gender? Can't do that either. Never mind. So just do as I say, I guess. <laughs> uh, no, I, I, think, I think that's a perceptive point, though, David, that— uh, you know, the two being too close might actually cause the same problems. So maybe, maybe the issue isn't so much distance per se, but like you say, the the issue, the the way that we are approaching these questions at all, the way that we are approaching fellowship with one another. You know, this is something I have to do, or if it's something like the 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 district level, this is something which I am bound to do. 
you know, this this kind of obligation which comes with it is not one that's likely to breed collegiality. And I'm not sure how to overcome that in our current system, perhaps maybe by, you know, working out through some of these issues, you know, trying to make the, the studies, maybe make the studies more, not even so much the lectionary kind of stuff, but even like, you know, hot issues, like let's, let's sit down and talk about, you know, this issue of the day, something that's going on in our society, and what do the scriptures have to say about it? You know, mm-hmm. I think trying to come at some of these issues in that way might help to overcome some of these uh, problems that we are seeing. Yeah, I, I, I think that progress emerges from from doing just what you described. So, you know, it's easy for us to overlook things that are that we don't have in common, things that are antithetical to unity. It's easy for us to overlook them and never touch them. But when we study scripture together, these things emerge. Just as like when you study when you study scripture privately, your conscience is stricken when you you know when you hear when you hear don't do this or or do that other thing. That that emerges naturally, you know, because the Spirit is accompanying God's word. So, and and that's the purpose of the scriptures that they would drive us they would drive us to unity. And as a result of that, you know, that drive raise issues that need to be dealt with. So it's kind of like it's possible for us all to get together and never once talk about things that are challenging. But if we want to get to the things that are challenging, maybe the maybe a way to do it is not like. Uh, cherry pick this or that thing that I like best, but see what presents itself from the scriptures. And I mean, goodness knows there's there's plenty there for us to work on. And in fact, things that we haven't paid attention to, you know, there maybe there are things about my practice as a pastor that I have never once considered could be, you know, could cause trouble for the unity of, you know, of my circuit, for instance. And I, I, I want to know, you know, like I want that to be made known to me so that I can I can do better. And I, I think that that desire to do better as opposed to feeling like we're, you know, like we're going to be truant if we don't attend, but like acknowledging that we have a chance to do better if we participate with, you know, earnestness and sincerity. Even, even when there are disagreements or a pastor can be, you know, we attempt to correct and he doesn't see anything wrong with it. At least, at least it's out there instead of just pretending as if it's all good. Yeah, I think that that pretense yeah. that that everything's okay is is more damaging to unity than 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 yeah. most other things. And realizing, of course, gentlemen, that there is some thinking within our own synod that that well, you know, unity is to be based on a very narrow set of principles. And at the end of the day, you can't tell me what to do. But we're united by the fact that we're in the same synod. When really, that's not that's not that's not the biblical form of unity that we see. I mean. If localism is a key to solving things, then I do think that local custom, insofar as it's somewhat historic and in accord with the scriptures, ought to be, you know, given the nod toward. And that's what we should all be striving for is is that greater unity. But novelty for some congregations wins the day, and in the hearts of some pastors it does. And, I mean, could you imagine a if we were all really trained to just strive for doing things in the same way, having a shared liturgy? shared lectionary. Could you imagine if these things actually, you know, were there so that we would be united in doctrine and practice? It's a radical thought, I grant you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, no, that that brings up a great point, Willie, because I think very often, and you can be on either side of the debate, but very often we tend to frame unity, like you say, within very narrow parameters. On the one side, you say, you know, we have our confessional documents 
And because we adhere to these documents and, you know, just kind of leave it at that, that's what gives us unity. And on the other side, you say, no, it's more about what we're doing and kind of this more, I mean, you know how to frame the debate, but I think, I think both of them can in some ways miss the point. You know, unity is not a matter of my, my principles, the things that I am, you know, trying to bring out, but an actual godly unity, that that bond of peace that Ephesians talk about, so that we are united both in our doctrine and in the way that we actually do things, right? Yeah. Does that make sense? Or am I just coming off and spouting heresy here? So. <laughs> no, it may, it just to make to, to tie back to the historical references, you know that the the purpose of visitation was to inquire about doctrine and life, about church practices, and also the personal, you know, the personal qualifications of the ministers. I mean, all these things are part and parcel of the unity that we have as a church. I mean, it's destructive of unity. It's destructive of the mission of the church if pastor so-and-so is living a degenerate life. I mean, in, not surprisingly, not just for his congregation, but also for the whole neighborhood. And uh, that's something that we should, you know, aware of the, the possibility of that and working to protect one another against that. Very well good. Put. Well, all right, we're coming up on the end of the episode. David, any any last words for us? No, you know, I really appreciate the, the conversation. I think that this issue is one that's just sort of come to mind recently for me. And uh, the the variety of historical practices has stood out to me as something that uh, should be considered and I think that it's worth our it's worth putting effort into this as much as we put effort into being good shepherds of our own flocks we we ought to put a similar effort into uniting with the other shepherds of uh, flocks around us amen well thank you so much for joining us we look forward to having you back this has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi and David Buse. God love you and God bless. It ought indeed to be considered a blessed privilege, thus to meet and take counsel together with our brethren in the Lord. And it is not time wasted. Iron sharpeneth iron, so a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. Many a hard and troublesome question has been solved. Many serious mistakes have been avoided and corrected. Many a discouragement removed. Many a grief softened. Many a despondent one lifted up by these meetings and counselings together. Many a pastor has come, heart sore and weary, and has returned to thank God and take courage.